name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It is indeed a blessing to lift the name of the Lord on high and to remember what he has done for us when he came down from heaven. Amen. I want us to take this time to just uh, meditate on God's love this morning, to think about what God has done for us as we go through 1 John chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 1 to 3. I want to take our minds and us to take our minds to just focus on the Word of God. I preached this sermon before and um, at another church, and I want us to also come together as a church and um, go through it as well and, and, and think about God's love for us. The title of the sermon is Overwhelmed by God's Love. Overwhelmed by God's Love. First John chapter 3, we're going to read verse 1 until verse 3. I read from the ESV. This is God's word. Let us hear him. <clears throat> See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning, O oh God, that when we draw near to you, we know that you are faithful to speak to us through your word. Lord, I find myself at a weak place this morning, but I know, Father, that you use weak vessels. Use me, Father, to declare your word in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Overwhelmed by God's love. You see, when one enters the, the realm of God's love, when, when we enter the realm of God's love, you are reminded how small you are and how great God is. You instantly feel like a child on the seashore trying to empty the ocean with a spoon. In other words, the subject of God's love is, is inexhaustible. Many have gone deep into the riches of this mine and yet it still abounds as though no one touched its treasures. Thousands of songs have been sung poems recited, books written, and sermons preached about God's love. Yet when we approach the subject, it always feels fresh and new. And I want us to look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, verse 1 to 3, and consider this subject once again this morning. These, these three verses stand as the, as the most thrilling words in the whole of the epistle. And here in this passage, we, we meet a man, the, the Apostle John, who, who was amazed by, by God's love. We find him struggling to find the right words to express his wonder over the love of God. He is standing in a posture of worship and adoration before God. 
I, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of this man and marvel as he does. As we consider this passage, we see three amazing descriptions of God's love. Three amazing descriptions of God's love. Let us look at them. The first description of God's love is that it is a love that changes our identity. It is a love that changes our identity. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see, the focus of verse 1 is on what we are as a result of God's love. It is, it is concerned with our identity. It is concerned with who we are as, as, as a result of the love of God. As John considers it, he is gripped with wonder. He is, he, he is gripped with, with excitement. And, and he says, see, or, or as other Bible visions say, visions say look or, or, or behold. He is calling for his audience to, to pause and, and consider what he says at this moment. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and, and so we are. The words, what kind of love, exposes how limited vocabulary is. Vocabulary is limited whenever we, we attempt to explain the love of God. The, the, the Greek word translated what kind of can also be translated from what country. In other words, it gives us the idea that this love was something that John was not naturally familiar with. It, it, it was foreign to his imagination. It is a love that is distinct. It is, it is noteworthy. It is, it is remarkable. It is singular and common. It is a unique, special, exceptional, and a peculiar kind of love that the Father has given to us. The hymn, that, the, the, the hymn, Love of God, the love of God, captures this idea beautifully in the first verse. This is what it says. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And where the skies of parchment made, where, where every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would empty, would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is written in, the, in, in, in a very archaic English language. And let us bring it to our contemporary context and explain it that way. That the, hymn, uh, the, the idea of the hymn is this, that if, if, if we could fill the ocean with ink and, and the skies were, 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 were paper, the, the skies were made of paper, and every stalk on earth was a pen, and every man, every single individual on earth, was a writer by trade. And we came together and said, let us fill our inks, let us fill our pens with the inks of the ocean and write of the love of God above. And, and if we attempted to do that, we would empty the ocean dry, trying to write of God's love, yet we would not have written the whole of God's love. We might try to explain it in the words, in words, but 
words could only go so far. When we speak of God's love, we realize how limited our vocabulary is. Even if you speak multiple languages, you realize how you can speak of God's love and you stand before God and you are left breathless. You are, you are left without a word to describe it and all that you can do is just marvel and, and worship it before God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. It, it, it is a love that the Father has given to us. In other words, we did not end it. We, 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 we could not end it. There was nothing lovable or, or lovely in us. There, there was nothing that we did that could end us the love of God. This love the Father has given to us has changed our identity. It has made us children of God. The, the, the word called has a sense of someone being drawn near or being brought near into a personal relationship. It is this idea of understanding your nature and, 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 and coming to an awareness that God has drawn you near to him. God has called you near to him, even though he knew the depths of your heart, even though he knew the darkness that, is, that was in your heart, he still drew you near to him. It is that idea of understanding that God knew me perfectly. He knew me and he did not need a testimony from other people. He did not need a testimony from my wife to know me. He did not need a testimony from my children to know me. He knew me perfectly, yet he still drew me to himself. Sometimes we don't even know ourselves, right? If God was to reveal the depths of our heart, we would even try to run away from ourselves. Yet it is the love of God that has made us his children, that has, that has drawn us to him. It, it is that kind of love that, that when you think about it and you stand before God and, and you consider it, it is, it is that kind of love that leads you to, to confess that I, I am an accursed, miserable sinner. How, how did God see me in the midst of other sinners? There was nothing different about me. I, I'm amazed that this great love has reached out to me in the miry clay of sin and brought me to the Father to be his child. I love how John puts a caveat to it. After describing this love that has made us children of God, and he says, and such we are. And such we are. In other words, we are not just children of God in name, but also in reality. Amen. There are many people who claim the title of being children of God today. You hear it a lot when people say, we are all children of God. But that declaration usually is devoid of truth. That cannot be followed by such we are. There is no reality of chapter 2, verse 29 of First John, where John says, if you know that he is righteous, if you know that God is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. 
So when you say such we are, it is not only a confident assertion of being a, ch a child of God, but also the reality of John chapter 2 verse 29 that is true of you being a child of God. And being a true child of God, as you look at this passage, is a mystery to the world around us. It, it, it is mysterious. But when the world looks at the children of God, they just see a mystery. The love of God has made us strangers and aliens to the world around us. Just think of it like this. People that are, that are mute, right? Uh, no, that are deaf. That, that cannot hear anything. I, I hope that that's a, the, the right description. That cannot hear anything. And a, a, a deaf man is looking at people that are dancing to a nice musical tune. In his mind, he's not hearing anything. And he thinks these people are crazy. They are out of their mind. They are just moving around to, 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 to nothing because he cannot hear anything. That is the description of John. He says, the world is deaf. They cannot see the tune of the gospel. They, they cannot hear the tune of the gospel. That when we, we move according to the tune of the gospel, when we move according to the love of God, as we hear God singing his love in our hearts and, and us responding to it, the world looking at us, they don't see anything and they think that we are crazy. It is a mystery to them. It is mysterious that the nature of the relationship between God and his children is a, is a mystery to the world. John MacArthur explains that in this way. He says those outside of Christ cannot understand the true essence and character of believers, which shines forth in their likeness to the heavenly Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, their Savior, and Lord, because Christians are so intrinsically different from the world around them, having been transformed by the Father who adopted them, the New Testament appropriately describes them as strangers and exiles, as aliens and strangers. You see, all this work that the Father has done in our lives, this work of God's great love, <coughs> must cause us to respond with worshipful awe. It, it must cause us to respond to God with worship and adoration to him. The reason we are oftentimes not, not blown away by the amazing love of God is that we, we cannot, we, we, we have no knowledge of our own unworthiness. We, we minimize our unworthiness, which invariably minimizes the greatness and beauty of God's love. In other words, we, we fail to see the greatness of God's love because we are blind to our own unworthiness. We lose sight of the fact that we are in the shoes of the woman in Luke 7 who, who, was, who was known as a sinner by all. But her many sins were forgiven. 
And so she loved much. She, she responded to Jesus by loving much. And all she could offer before the Lord was unrestrained worship. Unhindered worship. You see, it is when we see the ugliness of our sin that we can appreciate the beauty of God's love. It is only when we see ourselves as the Bible describes us that we can come to stand as, as, as John stood before the Lord and said, Behold, how great a love that has bestowed upon us. Edmund Clooney describes the love of God as the descent of God's royal grace that conquers our rebellion, atones for our guilt, and draws us into sonship. I wonder if I, when I'm speaking to you this morning, if you, have, if you have ever experienced the love of God. I wonder if you can sing of the love of God that has freed you from slavery, a love that has redeemed you, a love that has drawn you to the Father, a love that has changed your identity. I wonder if that is your song this morning. You see, in the final analysis, we should not be surprised that God's wrath is poured out on people. We should not be surprised by that. Because that is what we deserve. Our sin has earned us first-class tickets to hell. And God would be justified by, by sending each and every one of us to hell. I know people, I, 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 I hear a lot of people saying, you know, hell is not made for, for people. Hell is made for, for Satan and his angels. And, and a lot of times, you don't find that in scripture. You, you don't find that. But you find a lot of people saying that a lot of times. But when you look at the testimony of scripture, it shows that our true home, what we really, really deserve, is hell. You see, those who are in hell deserve to be in hell. Those who are in heaven don't deserve to be in heaven. That's why we call it grace. Right? That's why we call it grace. There, there is no merit in those who are in heaven. That's why we call it the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God, because they don't deserve to be there. It is not their home. It has become their home because of what Christ has done, not because of what they have done. That's why we are there and we are marveling at the grace and the mercy of God. That is why when we are there, as amazing grace, the hymn says that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, it would have been like the first day we have begun. Because we would have been marveling at the love and the grace that was displayed on our behalf. So we should not be surprised 
when God pours out his wrath on us? What should overwhelm us? What should surprise us? What should leave us awestruck is the fact that God will love us at all. That should leave us awestruck and amazed. So John says, it is a love that, is ch- that changes our identity. The, the, the second description, the, the second amazing description of God's love is that it is a love that changes our destiny. First of all, it changes what? Our identity. Secondly, it changes our destiny. It changes our destiny. Look at verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, John argues that the public revelation of this love is displayed in changing our identity by making us God's children. This love awaits a public revelation in the second coming of Christ in making us like him. He he reflects on how this love will have consequences in the future. It is an overwhelming truth to think about. And and this is one of those verses we we need to keep coming back to for, for encouragement when we are weary in our Christian walk. This is one of those Christian verses that we need to memorize. That in moments of, in dry seasons, in our spiritual walk, we, we remind ourselves that, that there's a time when, when, when our destiny will be changed. We, we, we need to remind ourselves of these verses whenever we go through depressing times, whenever we go through difficult times and, and, and trials that we face in the world. We need to be coming back to these kinds of verses. In, in our Christian walk, we, we experience just a glimpse of what it is to have, a, to have the presence of God within us. Just a glimpse of it. We, we, we see in a mirror dimly we know in part to use the words of apostle paul in first corinthians 13 but when christ comes there will be a greater experience for us there will be a greater experience of god's love a greater experience of god's presence you see the destiny of of the child of god has been changed as a result of God's love that has been given to us. The the imagination fails to even picture what this will look like. It it, it fails to to put into words what this destiny would be like. John confesses his failure, the, the, the failure of his imagination to capture what it would look like. Look at, listen to what he says. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. It, it has not yet appeared. He, he says, my imagination fails me to, to even try to describe it. This reminds me of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, What no eye has seen, no, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined 
what God has prepared for those who love him. What we will be is only known by God alone. It has not been revealed to us. It is something that is unspeakable. It is contained in the likeness of God. You see, even though our final destiny as children of God has not been revealed, we, we can be confident that this glorious promise will, uh, it will, it will occur in the future when Christ appears. He says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. It is clear that our final state is intimately connected with the coming of Christ. When you look at the testimony of scripture, we are told that because of sin, the image of God in us, the, 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 because we are, made, we are made in the image of God, but the image of God in us is marred. It, it is marred by sin. Meaning that sin has corrupted the image of God in, in, in man and, and woman, though he is still in, made in the image of God. Though we are still made in the image of God, but that image is corrupted. It is like a broken mirror. So in conversion, the image of God is being renewed in us. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 tells us that the, the new self which we have through conversion is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, in Romans chapter 9, verse 29, it tells us that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, to be changed according to the likeness of the image of his son. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, this is what it says. It says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the idea that John talks about when he says when he appears we shall be like him completely and fully this is our destiny as a result of God's love but I don't want you to miss this point I don't want you to miss this point see our true destiny was not to be like him our destiny was that of eternal torment in hell because of sin right from birth, we were heading straight to, to, to hell. David confesses that in Psalm 51, verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul draws a dark picture of the condition of all humanity in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to 12. He says this. He says, All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. Again in chapter 6 verse 23, he says, The wages of sin is death. You see, the testimony of scripture is clear. No one deserved the love of God. 
Our destiny from birth was hell, but God in his great love looked upon us with pity. Not because we are pity worthy, but as Ephesians chapter, three, chapter 2 verse 4 says, because of the great love with which he loved us. He changed our destiny through Christ. We were not seeking him. We were, we were all running away from him, running as fast as we can to our death. But out of love, he plucked us out of fire as a brand. He gave us our new destinies in Christ. In other words, this means if you are here and you don't have a relationship with God through Christ, your destiny is still hell. Your destiny is still hell. You see, it doesn't matter if you are born in a Baptist home. It doesn't matter if you are born a Baptist. But if you're not born again, it doesn't matter how Baptist you are, you are going to hell. A lot of times people hide under their Baptist uh, identities. They, they hide under their denominational identity, saying, I was born in this kind of family. My parents were in this kind of family. Therefore, I'm a Christian because I'm a Baptist. No, it doesn't happen like that. You're not a Christian because you're a Baptist. You're a Christian because of what God has done in Christ Jesus on the cross. When we stand before God on the last day, he's not going to look at your denominational background. not going to look at that if you are not in Christ if you're not in Christ if you don't identify with Christ your destiny is still hell to to use the words of Romans chapter 8 verse 1 in the negative when it says there is no condemnation for those in, in Christ for those who are in Christ negatively we should know that there is great condemnation for those who are not in Christ What do you do this morning when you think about this? When you're not in Christ, the only thing that you can do is throw yourself at the mercy of God. There is no sinner so mad with sin that God cannot cleanse. Look at the cross. His love on the cross was ultimately displayed when his son was nailed on behalf of sinners. I believe that the best commentary on the love of God is found in John chapter 3 verse 16 when Jesus says to Nicodemus for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life that, that is the greatest display the greatest commentary on God's love why perish when God in love has made a way through Christ John describes this love. He says, this is the love that has changed our identity and it has changed our destiny. And thirdly, the third description of God's love is that it's a love that changes our conduct. It's a love that changes our conduct, our identity, our destiny, and thirdly, our conduct. Verse 3, look at verse 3. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The argument that John makes here in this verse is that being made a child of God must necessarily be followed by a certain quality of life. 
we, we cannot come we, 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 we cannot come to see uh, uh, this love as a sentimental love. This is not a sentimental love where, where the popular thought is you can live in any way that you want. God loves you the way you are, right? People say that you can, I mean, God loves us all. We, we are all God's children. He loves us. But that not, that's not the idea that John has when he describes God's love here. He says, and anyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Noticeably, the word end is the first word. It reminds us that the truth of this passage is intimately connected with and established on the previous verse. Edmund Hibbert explains that the past experience of regeneration brings with it a living hope for the future. And this, hopes, this hope motivates us for present Christian living. You see, the love of God that transforms us is also the love of God that sanctifies us. A Christian is one whose eyes are turned towards Jesus and gazing fully in his wonderful face. John says, anyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our hope in Christ is expressed in the kind of life we live in the light of his coming. This hope mentioned here expresses a desire for some future good with the expectation of obtaining it. There is a confident expectancy. The only reason there is confidence is that we are is in the one that we are hoping in. This confidence is not based on the amount of hope that we can muster up, but it is based on the object of our hope. Anyone who thus hopes, what? In him, right? In him. In him refers to Christ Jesus. He is the sure unchanging foundation of a believer's hope. As the hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but put my hope on Jesus' name. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. The, 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 the quality of hope does not rest in the one doing the hoping, but it rests on the one hoped in. One might hope that Kaiser Chips be, will, will be winners one day of the African Champions League. But the question is, are they hope worthy for that star? It does not matter how many I hope souls one confesses. If the object of your hope is not hope worthy, your hope is in vain. But Jesus Christ is hope worthy. He is trustworthy. He, he promised in his word to return and take his own to be with him. And we can bank on that. Right? We can put our money on that. I didn't um, Okay. Anyways. <laughs> Consequently, John says, anyone who, who, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, all who hope, who, who have the hope of seeing Christ as he is and being with him in glory, purify themselves. And this is not ceremonial purity, but moral purity. Right? It is abstaining from all evil. 
and all that is in the world. John enumerates this in John chapter 2, what what is in the world. He says, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The way John phrases this sentence gives us an idea that purity of life is not optional for other Christians and not for others. It is for every single Christian, whether you are five hours born again or 50 years born again. Purity of life must characterize each and every single Christian. You cannot be a Christian and not pursue purity of life. This is a true, genuine test of a Christian. Anyone who genuinely possesses hope in the Lord's return purifies himself. You see, the verb purifies is in the present tense. It's a a present tense. It it gives us an idea of a continuous practice of purification. We we are to pursue and and, and keep ourselves pure. Uh, This process of of a continuous practice of purity implies that one has not arrived in their spiritual journey, while on the other hand, they are not complacent in their spiritual progress. It shows that I have not arrived, I have not reached my spiritual peak. But on the other hand, that does not discourage you, but it it encourages you to keep pursuing purity. And this is a beautiful thing, that the beautiful thing about this sanctification is that the believer is responsible for carrying out their own purification. But on the other hand, there is a total dependence and resignation on God's spirit, uh, on God's spirit for, 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 for sanctification. This is what we call the doctrine of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right? Paul brings this out clearly and wonderfully in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, though there's a call for a lifelong pursuit of purity and holiness, a call to continually strive to be like Christ, there's also a sense that God is the one who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In in other words, the lack of desire for purity in an individual is that there's a lack of knowledge of who Christ is. And moreover, there's also a big question mark as to whether that person has truly encountered God, has truly experienced God. That is why John stresses that those who purify themselves purify themselves because Christ is pure. In other words, deep down in the believer's heart, the desire for purity is a desire to be like Christ. Christ is a perfect example of purity. Those who have experienced the great love of God seek to be conformed to his likeness. They want nothing more than to be like Christ. Amen. Let me conclude by asking you this question. Have you experienced God's love? And is there evidence in your love, in your life, that you have experienced this love? The experience, the, 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 the evidence that shows that your identity has changed, your life has changed. 
Are you joyously waiting for the second coming of Christ? Or does the thought of the second coming of Christ cause you to tremble? Does it cause you to tremble, the fact that Christ is coming back again? Does your daily conduct demonstrate a changed life and an anticipation of Christ? Is that how your life is characterized? A changed identity, a changed destiny, and a changed, a daily changing of life. Let us take this time and meditate on God's love and pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great, great love. We pray that our heart will consider this and respond to you with amazement, with worship and adoration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.